All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 69. John chapter 6, verses 25 through 69. And I'm going to go ahead and read those now. We're going to cover a little bit of real estate in reading this. So I encourage you, if you do have a Bible, to go ahead and and pull it up, or you can look to the tab here off to my side. And if you do that, I'd encourage you to look at the NIV or New International Translation, as that's the one I'll be using. Um, But we're looking at John chapter 6, verses 25 through 69. When they, that is the crowd, found him, that is Jesus, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I come down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Skipping on down to verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Well, welcome again to this virtual online gathering. My name is David Collister. I'm the lead pastor here at Current. It's good to be with you in this way. I was asking the team earlier this week if I should hit pause on our series to talk more specifically about coronavirus, to have a sermon specifically dedicated to that subject. And they each in their own way said, let's not do that. You know, we're going to share some words, we're going to pray, but let's not let this virus take our entire focus. And that felt right. So we're going to continue, as Cindy mentioned earlier, in this hard saying series as we're looking at some of the hard sayings of Jesus, whether they're words that are hard to understand or hard to apply or both. Here in this text, we have some hard sayings. We have a hard saying. Look at verse 53 of John chapter 6. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, unless you eat my flesh, Jesus is saying, and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And look down at verse 60. On hearing it, many of Jesus' disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? So there it is. Out of their own mouths, at the exact time of Jesus saying it, his own disciples saying, this is a hard teaching. So what's going on here? And how is this hard saying, along with all the hard sayings we've been looking at in this series, challenging, yes, but also life-giving and powerful for us today? Uh, That's what we're going to consider at this time. So let's first set the scene. Jesus had just the day before miraculously fed the 5,000, which I imagine, even if you haven't grown up in church or know the Bible all that well, you might know the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, how he took the few loaves and he broke them after giving thanks and he multiplied them and distributed them to his disciples to then hand out to the crowd. And And the crowd was just utterly amazed. In fact, at the end of that story, if you look back at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6, it says that the crowd came to him and wanted to make Jesus king by force. Well, Jesus didn't want this. It's not why he came. So he withdrew, and he sent his disciples on ahead of him across the Lake of Galilee, which is near Jerusalem. And then later he himself followed across the Sea of Galilee. And then the the crowd followed And what we see towards the beginning of our text is that Jesus is calling out the crowd for why it is they were following after him. He says in verse 26, Very truly, I I tell you, you are looking for me because you ate the loaves and had your fill. That's Jesus' way of saying, you guys are coming for some more food. You guys are coming for another trick, another miracle. Um, But I want to show you something, he goes on to say, something of, of infinitely greater importance. You are focusing on material things, But I want to show you something of infinitely greater importance in a spiritual truth, which really sets the scene in uh, our teaching today. He says, you think, essentially, he's saying, you think that the multiplying of the loaves is cool. Well, here's what matters most. It's to believe in me, the one God has sent. Well, the crowd at this, if you look at verse 30, said, well, what sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? which in a way is kind of a comical response, right? I mean, Jesus literally the day before had given them the sign of multiplying the 5,000 loaves. I'd count that a sign, right? 
And yet they're asking this question. So in, in one sense, it's kind of a comical response of theirs. But in, in another sense, this question is actually extremely relevant, even today, because it's a question many people ask. Maybe it's a question you have asked or are asking. God, if you exist, give me a sign so that I can follow. I wonder if you've ever asked that question. But Jesus, we see here, resolutely decided not to give them a sign. No, he's saying to them, you have all that you need to believe. And that's the first thought we have here today. Uh, Jesus isn't so interested in giving you a sign because he is the sign. Uh, Jesus desires deeply for you, for me to follow him. Or as he says in verse 35, for us to come to him. That is to say, to put our hope and trust in him. That's why he came to earth. But he's not so interested in giving you or me sign after sign, you know, to overwhelmingly convince us. Why not? Because he already has given us more than enough to make a decision about him. Now, real quickly, does this mean that God doesn't give us any signs or that he doesn't use different means to kind of get our attention or draw us toward himself? That's not what we're saying. In fact, this text repeatedly affirms the fact that God does use different means to draw us to himself. For instance, he had literally just with this crowd the day before given them a sign in the feeding of the 5,000, multiplying of the loaves. That's a sign. God was using that. And then if you look down at verse 44 of our text, Jesus says, the Father draws us. Uh, That word draw, to draw, is a very powerful word. It means to allure us, to entice us. It's not saying God tries to drag us, you know, kicking and streaming. No, he draws us, he lures us with his beauty, with his love, gently yet purposely. He wants to draw us and allure us. God does use signs or different means to draw us to himself. But ultimately, Jesus is saying here is what we have more than enough to make up our minds whether or not to follow him based on who he is and what he's done for us. I've had the opportunity over the years as a pastor and even just you know, as, a, as, a, as a Christian uh, to hear a number of people have different experiences in terms of... Uh, having gone through or seen signs in their life. Actually, they would even articulate it that way. I've seen, you know, like a sign in my life. And it either leading them to ultimately say, you know, I want to put my faith in Jesus, or leading them away and saying, no, I don't want to put my faith in God. Um, A couple of years ago, we had friends of friends who were in a terrible, terrible uh, accident. They had a terrible, terrible accident with with their newborn. The mom, totally exhausted one night, had accidentally fallen asleep while feeding her baby. And in the middle of the night, the baby got lost in the blanket and smothered. It was, it was, it was heartbreaking. Uh, by the time they realized that he had been without oxygen for a long time, they rushed him to the hospital. They called their good friends uh, who, uh, not knowing what to do, asked if they could call their pastor. So they called Cindy and me, asked us to come to the Stanford Pediatric Hospital. The baby was in the ICU ward there in, in pediatrics. The situation, needless to say, was incredibly hard. People were in shock. There was lots of tears, not a lot of hope. And although the boy was alive, the doctors were literally saying it would take a miracle for him to make it. That was their word, Stanford doctors. It would take a miracle. I asked if I could help in any way that I could, obviously trying to you know, just be there in whatever way was appropriate, not knowing what to do. And they asked me to go ahead and start planning the baby's funeral. 
And I said, you know, I, I can do that. But would, would it be all right if we, if we prayed? Long story short, that dad that night uh, spent hours in the chapel there at the Stanford Hospital just kind of sprawled out on the floor praying to God, something he had never done before. God, if you exist, I don't, I've never even prayed to you, but if, if you exist, would you heal my son? And would you, would you, would you heal him? And if, and if you heal him, I'll see that as a sign and I will, I will follow you. Um, the wonderful news is the, the, the baby survived. It was a miracle. But although they came to, ch- to church from time to time, after that our kids went to preschool together for a while. From what I know, the man never followed God after that. Or I think of another friend. Two weeks ago we were talking and she was telling me how she, has, she had no spiritual beliefs growing up, basically, never went to church. And then she experienced something, I think it was a few months ago, I forget the exact time frame on this, where she was up skiing at Tahoe, and it was that infamous last run of the day. I wish, I wish we could not go on the last run, but I think that's technically not possible. Um, but I've, I've been there with the last run and taken a spill that, that almost ended things for me. Well, she was on a last run, and she took a very hard fall, going down a very steep cliff. Thankfully, she was wearing a helmet, but she was recounting the story and said, after a couple of tumbles, end over end. She blacked out. She ended up uh, cracking her skull, which she needed surgery for. It was really scary. Um, but this is the reason we actually had gotten to know each other. Is she, she woke up after surgery, and she just felt to the core of her being that God was there somehow. She'd never followed him or really considered him all that much, never really gone to church, but she figured, you know what? I feel God there, and he's reaching out to me. And so I wanted to reach back out to him. Look, God does give signs. Sometimes they're in a more dramatic fashion. Sometimes they're more in the variety of faint whispers or, or quote-unquote, too many coincidences. He does use signs, but signs ultimately are not what we need most. Uh, What we need is to make up our minds, open our hearts to look at the person of Jesus And so that would be my encouragement to you today if you're just checking out Christianity. Maybe you logged on today and figured, hey, this is a great way to experience church without going in there and meeting those weird Christians in person. I'm just joking. People at Current aren't so weird. I'm I'm a little weird, but but maybe you're here. That's that's your story. We're so excited that you're here. And we're so glad that you would spend this time with us virtually. I just encourage you to check out Jesus and his claims. Maybe one thing you could do during this isolation period is read through one of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, which is what we're in today, about Jesus' life and his person. The reason why I suggest that to you is because if Jesus claims and who he is do not ring true, they don't hit you at at the core, sore level, then none of this matters. But if his claims and who he is do ring true for you, then they are more than worth pursuing. Um, You and I don't need signs so much as we need Jesus and who he is, the sign. Which leads us to the next thought. Uh, Jesus isn't so interested in pointing the way because he is the way. Uh, Jesus isn't so interested in pointing the way because he is the way we see here in this text. The crowd is asking for another bread trick. You know, pump out another miracle, circus boy. Give us some more bread. You know, we saw you do it for the five th- for, for the, the crowd yesterday. We want to see you do it again. And it's at this, Jesus declares his famous statement there in verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Uh, Jesus isn't so interested in pointing the way because he is the way. Notice Jesus does not say here, I have come to be the bread giver. What he's saying is, I am the bread of life. This bread of life metaphor is incredibly meaningful and helpful to kind of consider, at least in two senses. Uh, For starters, let's consider, let's remember that Jesus was talking to first century Palestine people. Uh, these, this was long before Yelp existed. This was long before Michelin star restaurants were ever around, right? Bread was a staple. And so in a sense, when he's saying that he's the bread of life, he's saying, I'm available and accessible to anyone and everyone. Uh, he did not say, I'm the caviar of life. I'm the, I'm the cake of life, which there are many parts of the world today, let alone back then when he said it, that still don't have access to these things like we do in our culture today. No, he said, I am the bread of life. He's saying, I am a primary source of nourishment, the primary source of nourishment. And no matter where you are on the social tier, your spiritual background, I'm available to you. That's why he says in verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. But secondly, the bread of life metaphor points to the satisfying nature of Jesus. That's why he says, verse 36, whoever comes to me will never go hungry again. All other breads, whether the breads that we go down and pick up at the grocery store or the amazing miraculous bread that Jesus had used to fill the bellies of the 5,000, all other breads leave a sense of dissatisfaction in the end because after a while, hunger ultimately strikes again. But by contrast, Jesus is saying, once tasted, he will ultimately remove the need for further satisfaction. He said something similar to the woman at the well, which is actually two chapters earlier in the same gospel account in John, John chapter 4, verse 14. He says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst again. Jesus is saying, I alone can satisfy the heart. Listen to how one writer put this. In a society which has experimented to the point of satiation with every form of material, physical, and spiritual palliative to fill the inner emptiness of its heart, Jesus' invitation comes with wonderful relevance. He who comes to me will never go hungry, will never be thirsty. With such a declarative statement, Jesus claimed something no other teacher claimed. I am the bread of life, he said. It's not something I just give you, but it's something I am for you. In a way, you have to feast upon me, Jesus is saying. Now, what does that mean? And, what, and how do we receive that? Well, first of all, Jesus here is not saying we need to go out and cannibalize, you know, and, and go about uh, thinking about what he's saying here in that sense. He's not saying that. There's nowhere in the scriptures that seems to point that way. And if anything, they all point in the opposite direction. What he's saying here over and over again, we see in the text, is he's talking spiritually, metaphorically for us to understand a truth here. So how do we receive this bread of life? Well, we receive it in in two ways, it seems to me, from this text. If you look back at verse 28, the crowd asks, what must we do to do the works God requires? Their way of thinking was, how how do I get right with God, Jesus? How do we uh, earn eternal life? Jesus gives them a crystal clear answer. He says in verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. We receive Jesus, the bread of life, first by believing in him. 
Or looking down to verse 35 with different verbiage, Jesus says, by coming to him. This is to say, by putting our trust and our hope in him. The crowd found these sayings to be hard, to the point where if you look at verse 66, it says that even many of his own disciples, Jesus' own disciples, turned back, quote, and no longer followed him. So he turned to the 12, the 12 guys he had been spending all his time with. He said, what about you? Are you guys going to leave me too? And Simon Peter answered in verses 68 and 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. These words are actually why I'm Christian. Uh, when I was an, in undergrad at Cal, UC Berkeley, I had, a, I had a number of friends who would say to me that I was just, I was a Christian because I was raised that way. I was only, you know, I'm only a person who takes Christianity seriously today because that's how I was, I was raised. And initially I just thought, you know, that, no, the faith is my own. But they kept saying that, and I realized more and more, you know what, maybe, maybe they're on to something. And I, I can't just dismiss that thought. Maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe there is some validity to that. So I went on a spiritual journey of sorts, meaning I was just reading up on different things, asking a lot of questions, doing a lot of soul searching over a period of many months. And long story short, I came to two personal conclusions at the time. One, I just came to the conclusion that there has to be a God. I mean, when I look around this world, when I consider the air that fills my lungs, the beauty that surrounds us, and thinking about how it can't just be random or that we're just even here to begin with, getting my mind around that, I, I have the conclusion that there has to be a God. And the, sec the second conclusion I have is I believe in what the Bible calls sin, you know, the, the brokenness of people. By the way, I don't need religion to tell me that, the Bible or otherwise, to know about the brokenness, not just out there in society, but actually in here. I really resonate with Romans chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul, a pretty good moral guy, basically said, you know, the things that I realize I should be doing, I don't do. And the things I know I shouldn't be doing, in the end, I actually end up doing those. Who will save me from this? And the more I looked for solutions, or dare I use the religious term for salvation, it occurred to me that all the solutions I was looking to were in me. I just need to do better. I just need to get right with God. I just need to follow the rules. I just need to follow this faith system, or forget faith system. I just need to get out there and get mine. I, I, I. The problem with that thinking is it was utterly crushing to me because I realized I can't attain any of that. Um, and it was with these thoughts in mind that I was actually out on a walk one day late at night, and I recalled this story. I hadn't read the, that story, like this story early that morning, or I hadn't read it that month, but I just I just had this story come to my mind as I was on this journey of trying to figure this out, had these conclusions in my mind. And I, it was as if I was there with Jesus and the disciples. And he looked to the 12 and he said, what about you guys? You know, all these other disciples of mine, they're leaving. What about you? Are you gonna, are you gonna leave too? And Peter said the words that I read, just read to you. To whom else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And it was actually in that moment that everything just kind of hit home for me. I started to tear up a little bit, which is why I was glad it was a walk at nighttime. People didn't see me out there crying. Um, but it was in that moment I realized, that's why I'm Christian. This is the gospel, friends, that Jesus is the bread of life. This bread of life is sacrificial language, that he was broken, that we can have life 
in him. And that's where the crowd's premise went wrong with their, with their, with their question in, in verse 28. They said, they asked, what must we do to do the works God requires? I've asked that question. I feel the weight of that question. It's crushing because if the answer to that is do this, do this, do this, I realize I cannot. And I'm so thankful that Jesus' answer to this crowd was not, oh, the work that God requires, do this, this, and this. No, what did he say? With crystal clearness, he said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. In other words, Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It is a free offer of grace received by faith alone. The word of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's saying when we put our hope, our trust, our faith in him, he forgives, he redeems, he restores, he gives freedom, he gives life. It's received by faith, believing in him, verse 29, coming to him, verse 35, which means it's really straightforward. We either come to him or we don't, which means you can today, if this is you and you're just checking things out, you can receive him today, even on the other side of your screen, by praying something like, God, I want to come to you. I want to receive what Jesus has done for me on the cross. The second way we receive Jesus, the first way is by believing in him. The second way we receive him is by continually feasting upon him. Actually, you'll notice this progression in John 6. The first part, Jesus is talking about coming to him in a once and for all matter, a one time come to him, receive him. And then he moves into the second half of this text where he's talking about how we need to continually do it. That is to say, once we have received him, we need to remind ourselves or we need to preach the gospel to our hearts of who he is and what he's done. Because, friends, there's so many things out there where we try to get life from. So many things in this life we look to as the bread of life. But only Jesus can satisfy. So here's the question for us to wrestle with, and I've been trying to wrestle with myself. What are we going to in life as our bread of life? What are we feasting upon to fulfill our deepest longings? our deepest desires, because Jesus has come to me, feast upon me, because I alone can ultimately satisfy. The reality is we habitually and instinctively look to other things besides God and His grace for our ultimate sense of hope, significance, and security. We might believe the gospel at one level, but at deeper levels we do not. Human approval, professional success, power and influence, family and clan, identity, all these things serve as our functional bread of life rather than what Jesus has done and who he is. And as a result, we continue to be driven to a great degree of fear, maybe even anger, self-control. But here's what Jesus is not saying. Hey, you just need to stop doing that. You just need to stop looking to those things. Quit it. No, he's saying we need to replace those things with him, the true bread of life. We must feed on the gospel, as it were, digesting it and making it part of ourselves. This is how we grow as Christ followers. So how does that work real quickly? Well, it's what we tried to do in the beginning of this cast, right? If our functional bread of life is in our ability to control circumstances or to keep ourselves perfectly safe, then the coronavirus is going to have a crushing effect on us, will it not? Because clearly we do not have control and clearly we can't ultimately keep ourselves safe, which, by the way, is not to say we aren't to be prudent 
or live wisely or lovingly towards other, taking different measures. We're not saying that. But the point is, if our souls are to the point of hyperventilating because of the coronavirus, or that is we're living out of a spirit of fear, then we might be looking to our ability to keep ourselves safe as our bread of life. And so what can we do? How can we feast upon Jesus if this is the case for us? Well, we need to remind ourselves that we are in God's hands, that Jesus, the bread of life, died, died on the cross to give us life. And not just some life, life that he will raise us up on the last day, which he repeats over and over again in John 6. That's to say, even if, heaven forbid, coronavirus gets us, we are secure in him. Because even if what worse comes comes at us in life uh, affects us, we will have his peace, and we can extend that peace to others. Uh, How can we look to him as our bread of life if we are looking to other means such as like human approval for our bread of life? Now, what others think of us? You know, a lot of us get really caught up in thinking about how people perceive us or what they think of us. That's where we get a lot of our security, our significance. How do we look to Jesus as our bread of life there? Well, I can tell you, if we, just, if we live for human approval, we're not going to just be able to break that by saying, you know what, I'm going to willpower my way out of it. I'm just going to not care about what other people think. I'm just going just, just to do it. No. Instead, we have to look to the bread of life who had all the approval and acclaim not only in the world, but heaven had to offer. And Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself and took on the very nature of a person. And when he was with us, he was not only rejected by the crowds, which we see in this text, he was rejected by his own disciples, which we, always, we also see in this text. But on the cross, he was actually ultimately also rejected by our heavenly Father. And so, when we struggle with human approval, if we if we look to the costly sacrifice of him being rejected for us to bring us the only approval that matters in him, we can begin to release what others think of us. That's just two examples of how we can feast upon Jesus. There's many others we can think about, and perhaps we'll have opportunity to do that in our small groups uh, virtually this week. But we have to feast upon Jesus. He is the bread of life. So the question, friends, is what does this mean for us today? What's, what's your next step? For those of you who are just checking Jesus out, Christianity out, maybe even current, I come back and say, hey, what I'd encourage you to do is just look at Jesus some more. Not just what people write about Jesus, whether Christian or non-Christian, but what, is, what do the gospel accounts say about him firsthand? What, do, what, do, what does Jesus say himself and what are his claims? And do those ring true? You can read through the Gospel of John. And by the way, normally at this time, I point you to our connection table to get you some resources. We can still find ways to do that virtually. Uh, email us or reach out to us in some way or fashion. There'll be a chance to fill out some information on a connection card later. We'd love to journey alongside you in this. Maybe your next step today is you're ready. You have enough to make a decision. You've sensed God drawing you to himself. Your next step, maybe, is to come to him, is to receive him. And you can do that even now by praying, God, I receive you now. What Jesus did on the cross for me, the forgiveness of sins and life in his name, and I commit as best I can with your help to following you from this day forward. If that's you, would you let us know? Again, we want to come alongside you and be an encouragement and help to you in any way that we can. And then for those of you who have received him, what is your next step? What might it mean for you to go to Jesus, the bread of life? Maybe it's wrestling through 
different areas of life that you turn to for bread of life. Um, that can't fully satisfy, whether it's human approval, certain relationships, power, status, control of our surrounding circumstances, whatever it might be. How can you preach the gospel to your heart? How can you feast upon Jesus, the bread of life, and experience his love, his freedom, and life this week? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you so much that even though we're gathering virtually here, um, that doesn't get in the way of our encountering you and hearing from you and your word. So, Father, as we each digest, no pun intended there, the message uh, content today, Lord, would you speak to each of us? And would you minister to each of us? And would you help us as a church be there for each other, even in new creative ways in the midst of these unprecedented times for us? And then, Father, would you also help us as a church be a light for our community in this season too? Give us wisdom. Give us opportunity. Give us boldness in all these ways. We love you, Father. And we put all of this, ourselves included, into your hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.